Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As a Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. A member of my Native American community named Maya, I felt a deep sense of concern for the fading traditions and stories of our ancestors. Our small community was struggling to preserve our rich cultural heritage in the face of modern influences. Determined to reconnect with our roots and revitalize our heritage, I embarked on a quest to uncover and document the lost stories from an old library. As I delved into the stacks of the ancient library, the musty scent of aged books filled my nostrils, and I ran my fingers gently along the spines of the forgotten stories. Amongst the volumes, I discovered a weathered book that caught my attention. Its pages were yellowed with time, and the title read, The Story of the Mysterious Creature. Intrigued, I carefully opened the book and began to read the story of a native Sioux tribe from a century ago. The story recounted a haunting encounter with a terrifying creature that had plagued their land. The description sent shivers down my spine, and I couldn't help but visualize the creature in my mind's eye. The story detailed an otherworldly being with a round, human-sized head, devoid of a beak but adorned with huge, bat-like wings. Its body stretched five to six feet in length and had a wingspan of an astonishing twenty-five to thirty feet. There were no feathers to be found, only jet-black bat-like skin. Adding to its eerie presence was a long, skinny tail, reminiscent of a rat or dragon, which stuck straight out for about four to five feet. Unlike a bird, this creature didn't soar gracefully through the sky. 
Instead, it glided at a plodding speed, maintaining a consistent ten feet off the ground. After covering a short distance, it would take one powerful flap of its wings, never altering its altitude, and glide up the road until disappearing into the depths of the woods. The creature attacked that small Sioux tribe, leaving devastation and heartbreak in its wake. Surviving tribe members wept for the loss of their loved ones. Their anguish mingled with a determination to ensure the story would not be forgotten. They vowed to document every detail, preserving the memory of those who perished and the terror they had faced. In the early 80s, I worked in a hospital doing maintenance. I started on the 11 p.m. 7 a.m. shift. I was the only person in the main engineering plant behind the actual hospital where the boiler, pumps, assay equipment, etc. was. It's pretty much like you see in the movies with steam pipes everywhere and whatnot, just better lighting. After a few weeks, I started to notice movement at the edges of my vision, like someone jumping behind a metal tank or ducking behind an electric motor. There were times I thought it was the guy I knew from hospital security because he was the only one else who had a key. Every time I'd check it out, though, I'd find a big, fat nothing. It was creepy, but I chalked it up to just some quirk of the mind playing tricks. I finally mentioned to the day shift guy who worked the 11-7 before me that I thought I was going crazy seeing this phantom thing always at the periphery of my vision. He got super serious and said he was relieved to be off that shift, because he used to see him all the time, too. I moved on to a different type job not long after. The hospital implant is still there. I should drop by and talk to the night shift guy. Apologies if this isn't allowed, I got to thinking after a couple of weird things I experienced in my hometown, and it had me thinking, if anybody else has experienced anything, back when we were teens, me and my brother were out for a walk outside of our neighborhood, where we were walking was kind of wooded, but the houses were still pretty close together, yet considerably more in the boonies compared to our place. Anyways, we had almost completed the loop of the area and were around the bend going toward the exit when we heard something. Odd. I remember there was a helicopter overhead around the time we both heard this weird guttural yell growl, like right next to us it was so damn close. It sounded like a mix between a mountain lion, a pissed off house cat, and yet oddly human like all at once. We both just froze and looked at each other startled, and they started looking around for the source, but there wasn't a single cat or anything animal-like about. I was pretty freaked out and practically sped walk to the road. All the while, my brother kept asking me what the E of that was, but I was too spooked to talk about it. It was like a primal-type fear. In an instant, we heard it, and I just kept looking over my shoulder the whole way back. Anyways, pretty benign compared to other stories I've read here, and I'm sure there's an explanation to the sound, but it did have me wondering, has anyone else experienced weird shit in Florida? I was a watch officer on a big semester at Sea Square Rigged Sailing Ship. We had just pulled into Porto, Brazil, after crossing the South Atlantic from South Africa. We arrived just before sunset and finished after dark, probably like 10 p.m. I had been at sea for weeks and was dying to get off the ship. I had two hours to kill until I stood the midnight to 4 a.m. watch. So me and another guy leave the ship in search of a place to get a beer or some new food, as opposed to the galley fare the cook had been making for days on end. Anyone who's seen the world from a ship can tell you that you don't go to new ports. You go to the same port over and over. A run-down waterfront industrial park surrounded by shitty industrial-adjacent neighborhoods. We walk out the main gate and hit a residential neighborhood that I can best describe as a barrio as an ignorant first worlder. House after house in a random labyrinth of narrow alleys. It's a ghost town. No one is on the streets. 
walking the whole time in a long shadow cast by the infrequent yellow floodlights randomly attached to buildings or telephone poles. All the windows are barred. Atop all the walls surrounding these homes, there are shards of shattered glass embedded in the mortar, a not uncommon security thing around the less developed word. And then we turn the corner, and there's this tiny clearing bathed in bright fluorescent light. There's a little takeout window and a random assortment of benches and plastic lawn chairs. It's about 11, but it's lit up, so we knock on the window. We're about to leave when that guy shows up rubbing the sleep from his eyes. We feel like shit for waking this guy up, but he's super excited to see rich white people at his food stand. We weren't rich, but people in developing countries equate white first-worlders with extravagant spending. Since we hadn't seen a money changer at this hour, we paid in United States dollars and totally feel the stereotype. It took him like 15 minutes to open his kitchen and I guess ignite stoves. We're running out of time and have a long walk back, but he insists we stay and eat. Oh, and Portuguese is the language in Brazil, and unlike a cafe in Paris, this guy doesn't speak English, like at all. So this whole thing is pantomimed with gestures. We want food. He points at the make line in his kitchen, wanting to know what we want. I point at the bread, meat, and make sweeping give me the works motions over all of it. Time passes. He gives us these little plastic-thin office trash bag-type plastic bags like the size of your fist. Sticking halfway out is a small sandwich roll. Looks like lettuce, veggies, meat, the usual. But it's got this creamy cheese sauce with a consistency somewhere between melted cheese and mayonnaise. I think it's queso. It's delicious as if, and we order two more. The sandwich comes in a plastic bag to contain the sauce, like cheese that it's floating in. Never seen anything like it before or since. We pay the man with two $20 S's, and he gives us a few Brazilian reels back, so now we got some local cash. We walk back through the empty streets, finishing our food, trying to clean our fingers and faces of this sauce too viscous and sticky for napkins to ever clean. We finish at a steady jog to make it through the gate in time for the midnight watch. Anyway, in this shadowy ghost town, it was kind of mysterious to stumble upon this light. And the darkness window that sold bagged sandwiches containing magical liquid cheese. So I often go up to Alaska to visit my grandparents and go fly fishing. It has to be my favorite hobby besides music. Anyways, this one summer, when I was about 14, I had an interesting experience. Well, me and my grandfather are hiking down this trail to our favorite fishing spot. It's about an eight-hour walk. We carry in tents, food, and fishing gear. Anyways, when we are about halfway through the walk, we find that in the middle of the trail is what looks like in a giant egg. Two trees were broken at the stump on either side of the trail and leaned against each other at the tips. These were these medium-sized bushy pine trees you see all over the mountainside. So we think nothing of it and pass under it and keep walking until we finally get to our campsite. When we get there, we find more trees broken like the one before, not just haphazardly, but literally the exact same way. Both me and my grandfather are confused as hell about this, but... Whatever, it's probably some dumb asses that found this place and wanted to scare people. Oh, well, people were here messing around. Let's get set up. So we do and settle in for the night. I'm in my single-person tent, and my grandfather is in his a few feet away. I fall asleep pretty quick. Sometime later that night, my grandfather starts shaking me by the shoulder and telling me to wake up. I crawl out of the tent to look around. It was that time of year that night is just perpetual twilight, so we could still see pretty well. All of a sudden, I hear this high-pitched scream. Like if you ever heard a lynx scream, it would have been pretty much dead on, but it had some weird twinge to it. We both wrote it off as such, but I still thought something was off about it as we sat there listening to it. The next morning, we got up and started fishing. It was going great. Both me and my grandfather had caught a lot of grayling. We had moved down to where our backs were to this berm that was covered in brush. 
At the top were these good-sized rocks. After about 30 minutes there, we hear this loud racket coming from camp like someone was throwing shit around. That same lynx scream was coming from the direction of our camp. And as soon as that one scream went up, a second one started from behind the berm. We both flip around and start looking at the berm while glancing back to camp. We start seeing something moving just over the other side. This weird-looking head kept popping up and down. It was a dark gray head shaped like Patrick's stars. We only saw what we thought was the forehead and up. Before we could make it out, this boulder, no joke, bigger than me at the time, comes flying over and lands right in front of me and my grandfather. Of course, we boat back to camp. When we get there, we find that all of our gear is trashed. The tent had shreds in it. Our coolers were thrown everywhere and our packs torn open. We heard the dam scream again and started running. We ran and ran and ran until I puked. All the while, we would hear whoops and the screams from far off behind us. When we made it back to that shape thing, the trees were snapped in half and thrown to the side. We finally made it back to my grandfather's truck and drove the F out of there. Never going back there again. I don't want to know what it was, and frankly, I don't care. I'm just glad I got out of there. I used to live in a log cabin in the middle of nowhere in Missouri when I was younger. My cousin's living right across the field from us, and grandparents living right down the road. Anyway, as kids would go out playing in the woods, usually we stayed pretty close to the house, but one day we wandered pretty far into the woods just to see what we can find. We end up coming out of the woods in this open field on this hill that overlooks a huge field of crops. In the middle of hill is a super worn down green cabin, decent size, probably barn size. Being kids, of course, we go to check it out. Inside are books really, really old books, and not like books on shelves like some secret library. No, a huge mound of books like flowing out of the house. You couldn't even see the floor of the cabin. Just humongous pile of books took up every room, every cabinet, and in the first big room, I guess what was a living room area. My cousin could almost touch the ceiling when he was standing at the top of the pile. Drove past it about two years ago. There's a back road by the farmer's field that looks up at the hill. The cabin's torn down now with orange tape wrapped around it. One of the oddest things I've ever experienced in my life. I live in Delhi, India, and love the Himalayas for its beautiful snow peaks and never miss a chance to go there whether solo or with group. I always avoided the popular tourist places. I'd my fair share of strange, creepy experiences, but this one beats them all. However, I was not alone, but with a friend, and it happened around ten years back. We spent a night at Chimoli, then we take small road from it, instead of sticking to our plan and decided to explore that area, and went quite far that there were no cell phone signals and no villages nearby. After 3 p.m., we fortunately saw a local cowboy and asked him for a hotel nearby. He told us that there is one hotel on a nearby road. After one hour, we reached that hotel. The hotel owner was surprised to see us, said that he normally gets very few visitors. We were pretty tired and went to sleep after dinner. During sleep, I had this weird dream. I remember it very vaguely now. I saw three beautiful women probably in thirties, all in traditional dress and jewelry, kinda centuries old, never seen before. I could not understand their language. It was not Hindi. It was like we all four are sitting, and they are talking to each other, and to me, probably trying to explain something to me, but I just could not understand what they are saying. I woke up in morning and talked to my friend about this. He also had the same dream, and it was the same three ladies. Imagine our reaction. We were shocked, horrified, and wanted to get out of there ASAP. We went to hotel owner. He looked at our face and started laughing. He then said, looks like you dreamed last night, and we must have seen the three ladies in dream. This really freaked us out. However, he told us a story about dreams. 
This dream happens to all the new travelers and only happened first time and not again. He said he also had the same dream when he bought that hotel and stayed there for first time. He also said he wanted to experience that dream again and again, as three women are really beautiful. And nearby villagers also told about this dream to hotel owner. The local legend is that those three women were queens of a local king long time back. The king had a war with invading Islamic army, and when news of king being martyred arrived, they all decided to become Sadie before the invading king arrived. They all died on that mountain. Before that, I was totally a science guy and never believed in things like that, but after experiencing it firsthand, I now believe in things like this. My co-driver and I generally took contracts from Utah to Pennsylvania, and we would make those deliveries in less than 48 hours. It was always finding contracts back that was a little trickier, but eventually we'd find two or three contracts that would lead us back to Utah. I wasn't comfortable with driving at night, but my co-driver loved it, so he drove during the night and I drove during the day. This would change once winter hit because the days were a lot shorter. I would start my shift sometime around 5-7 a.m. so that my co-driver could start his shift around 6-8 p.m. One time we had to make a delivery with a very tight deadline. And to make it as efficient as possible, that meant I would have to drive several hours after sunset. Since we were out in the boonies, it was pitch black on the highway with the occasional speeding car or truck that the darkness would engulf within a mile. I would have been more at ease if there was a fella truck on the road with me because it would have increased my line of sight. But this wasn't the case. I was the only one on the road at that time, and I could only see as far as my headlights. Then, before I knew it, I saw someone standing at the side of the road. I thought it was a hitchhiker, but the person wasn't looking at me. When I got closer, the person jumped in front of the truck. I screamed and shifted down so quick. The commotion made my co-driver jump out of the cab, and I explained what happened while parking the truck on the shoulder. We checked the front of the truck, but there was no sign that I hit anything. I was too chicken to go look for that person, so my co-driver went to check, but he found no one. We, wife and I, take expeditions to backcountry Vermont, fly fishing in the spring, and usually do really well on brookies. We hike downstream, camp and fish back. We generally will put on 10-15 miles on a long weekend. Anyway, so this spring we were doing our usual hitting nice pools and catching natives. One afternoon we were hiking back to camp on the bank. We came over a rise, and about 40 yards away was a barefoot man, gray breeches, long, untucked white shirt, standing on the river edge below us. I froze. He was staring straight ahead across the river, and then his head jerked at our direction. The whole person was a strange color, like a foggy scene, almost. I was fixed on him, maybe four or six seconds, and looked back at my wife. The look on her face told me she had already seen it, too. I looked right back, and the person was gone. No way a living human could have fled without us seeing. We chatted bewildered for a few, and then I had to go to check for tracks. Nope, not any sign. Yeah, that was interesting. I used to ride share with a colleague on a 45-minute trip to and from work each day. While sitting as passenger one day, gazing out the window, I very clearly saw a dead body hanging from a tree in a field close to the motorway. My stomach turned immediately, and I said, Oh, shit, did you see that? My colleague asked what happened. I told him I'd just see someone hanging from a tree in the field back there. For the rest of the day, I was pretty shook up by it. My colleague was somewhat skeptical and suggested that we look again tomorrow on the way home only that I would drive instead, the idea being that he could see for himself. Anyway, on the journey home, I drove in the slow lane, and we approached the same spot. I slowed down as much as I could, bearing in mind this is a 70 miles per hour motorway, and sure enough, the body was still hanging from the tree. 
My body shot cold again, not close enough to see features, but enough to make out from the clothes that it was most likely a man. However, my colleague still could not see where I was pointing, and he missed it again. I went home and googled local news, etc. For any missing person, and came up with nothing, I decided the next day that I would have to take action and stop on the hard shoulder or lay-by and report this. The next day comes, and on the drive back, we stop on the hard shoulder of the motorway. Get out and make our way to the tree. I remember my mouth being dry and my heart racing as we approached. We came to the clearing from which you could see the tree. All that was hanging from the tree was a snapped rope. It was a beautiful day during archery season, and I decided to venture out on my usual morning hunt. The sun felt so warm and inviting that I couldn't resist the urge to take a nap before embarking on my late afternoon hunt back to camp. I found a perfect spot under a tree overlooking a dry creek bed with a large patch of young pine trees about seven to ten feet tall at the top of the clearing. The area then opened up into a 50 by 75 yard clearing surrounded by mostly separated timber. The small pine tree location was fairly dense. I remember being jolted awake by loud thumping noises like heavy objects hitting solid dirt and tree branches snapping. I instantly thought, here come the elk. So I pulled myself together and eagerly prepared to see some elk emerging from the small pine trees. Instead, what I saw next left me baffled and uneasy. Large rocks weighing 50 to 100 pounds were being hurled through the air. They seemed to be coming from within the pine tree patch, and the commotion lasted for what felt like an eternity. But in reality, it was only about one to two minutes. I was completely taken aback. I had seen over 30 bears in the wild, had close encounters, and even observed them with spotting scopes. But what I was witnessing now was utterly unexplainable. I was certain that this was not a bear. Bears row rocks, but they don't throw 50 to 100-pound rocks. After the situation settled down, I cautiously walked back to camp and anxiously waited for my dad to return. The next day, I took my dad to the spot where I had experienced the strange event. We examined the rocks and found the exact spots where they had been removed from the ground. We could even see where the rocks had hit the ground and bounced. Unfortunately, we couldn't find any tracks since the ground was really hard and there was a lot of grass undergrowth. My dad and I were left with more questions than answers, but one thing was for sure. Something extraordinary and inexplicable had happened that day in the dense pine tree patch. This happened about eight years ago when I was 11. I was over at my best friend's house for a sleepover. We, my best friend, his older brother, and I were all sitting around wondering what to do when older brothers suggest we go to the park, at which we happily agree. Now something to know, this park wasn't actually a park at all. It was actually a small and dense patch of forest in the middle of the suburb where my best friend lived. So we all get ready and make the five-minute walk down there. We are there for about half an hour when we decide to stop and take a break in the middle of the forest. As we were sitting there, we thought it would be fun to do the whistle from the Hunger Games. The movie had just come out, and we were all obsessed with it at the time. So we all started doing it until the brother told us to be quiet. At first we didn't know when, but then we heard it, a faint whistle back. The brother did it again and again. There was a reply only this time. It was closer, and it kept getting closer. We all froze, not sure of what to do until it seemed to stop. We all agreed that it was time to go home at this point, and as we were about to come out of where we hid, I heard from a bush behind me, Hey, come here. And you can bet we took off running, as we were running. I swear I could hear someone running after us, so I turned my head back to look, and when I turned back, I ran eye first into a tree branch. I took a nasty fall, hitting my head. I don't really remember what happened after, but my friend and his brother must have carried me out, because the next thing I remember was my best friend over me asking if I was okay.
and we were in the field on the opposite end of where we entered. I had a black eye from the stick and a mild concussion from the full. The boys were both covered in cuts and bruises from running through the woods. We have never been back there since. We're all adults now, my best friend 18. His brother 20 and I 19, and we still talk about it and speculate on who or what that could have been. My friend and I were excited to go hunting on Gowdyville Road, just over the top of Gowdyville Mountain. The area was known for its abundance of game, and we were eager to test our skills and enjoy a day outdoors. As we trekked deeper into the woods, the sound of leaves crunching beneath our feet filled the air. I was following closely behind my friend, keeping an eye out for any signs of movement in the trees. Suddenly, my friend stopped so abruptly that I accidentally hit him in the back with my rifle. Startled, I asked him what was wrong. Look at this, he whispered, pointing to the ground. In the soft mud, we found several large tracks, each measuring about 16 inches long. They were unlike anything we had ever seen before. The tracks appeared to have been made by a large bipedal creature, leaving us both feeling a mix of excitement and fear. We cautiously followed the tracks, trying to determine where they might lead. As we continued along the path, we couldn't help but discuss the possibility that these tracks belonged to the legendary Bigfoot. We knew that the area was home to many stories of sightings and encounters, but neither of us had ever expected to find such compelling evidence ourselves. After tracking the mysterious prints for what felt like hours, we eventually lost the trail. The tracks seemed to vanish as suddenly as they had appeared, leaving us with more questions than answers. We returned to our campsite still buzzing with adrenaline from our discovery. That night, as we sat around the campfire, we couldn't stop talking about the tracks we had found earlier. We debated whether we should report our find or keep it to ourselves, fearing that others might not believe our story. In the end, we decided to share our experience with a few trusted friends and family members, hoping that our discovery would add to the growing body of evidence surrounding the existence of Bigfoot. Though we never found any further proof of the creature during our hunting trips, the memory of that day on Gowdyville Mountain would stay with us forever, serving as a constant reminder of the mysteries that still lie hidden in the wilderness. A few years ago, my sister decided to have a surprise 30th birthday for her husband. Since he missed his senior prom, she decided to make that the theme of the party and even booked the same hall his prom was hosted in when he was a teenager. Problem is, my brother-in-law grew up in basically the middle of nowhere, a small rural Missouri town that you have to leave the highway and travel down about five miles of heavily wooded back roads to get to. On top of being so isolated, there's a rather large heroin problem out there, both using and dealing. It's a pretty potent cocktail, but my sister was determined to have the party there. The party was at six, and my original plan was to drive out with my sister and her friends to help set up. My sister was heavily pregnant at the time and needed all the help she could get, and then drive back home with her. However, I got called into work and had to stay until four so I told my sister I would drive up by myself as soon as I was done. She warned me that it was pretty easy to get turned around on those country roads, but I had Google Maps to help me and didn't worry about it. The drive up was fine. It was late September, my favorite time of year, and the scenery was surprisingly pretty. I found the place, no problem, and helped with some last-minute setup before my brother-in-law showed up. The party was a lot of fun and lasted until about 11. When the hall closed, I was one of the... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Last people to leave, having stayed behind to help my sister and her friend stack chairs. Brother-in-law had overindulged at the open bar and had to be driven home by his friend. We ended up not actually heading out until almost midnight, and by that point I was exhausted. My sister once again warned me about being careful on the back roads, but I'd gotten up there okay, so I wasn't too concerned about the drive home. I hugged her goodbye, hopped into my car, and started working my way back to the highway. Unfortunately, in my sleepy state, I misjudged which road I was supposed to turn off as I reached the exit for the highway and ended up turning down an entirely different road that ran parallel to it instead. It was another heavily wooded and narrow back road. I started looking for somewhere I could pull in to turn around. After driving maybe 200 yards, I spotted a gravel embankment and decided to pull in there so I could get turned around. I pulled in and made a sharp U-turn so I could head back up the road, and as I lifted my head to check no one was coming, I saw it in my driver's side mirror, a figure in a dark blue tetcher and jeans with long black hair and a pale face, illuminated in my brake lights. My heart jumped into my throat as I gasped in fright. But after a second of pure panic, I realized that the pale face was actually a mask, one of those cheap plastic white ones you get at costume stores. I immediately felt like an idiot. It was almost October, so obviously this was a Halloween decoration. This embankment probably lead to someone's driveway, and the family who lived there probably had tons of things just like it in their yard. I took a moment to unclench my hands from the steering wheel and let my heart rate get back to normal and ended up catching a glimpse of the thing in my mirror again. And I noticed that the embankment didn't lead to a driveway. There was nothing else behind me but tall grass and trees. I briefly wondered why anyone would put a Halloween decoration out in the middle of nowhere. And then the decoration took a step forward. I slammed on the gas and shot forward eventually getting back to the main road and onto the highway. I don't think I stopped shaking until I reached my town city limits half an hour later. Looking back, I definitely wasn't in any danger. I was in a car. All the doors were locked, and I could easily have run down whoever that creep was if they tried anything. If they'd gotten even one step closer when panic mode set in, that's probably what I would have done. It was probably just a kid or a local druggie in a crappy mask, giving motorists a good scare and not really thinking about the consequences. But still, it was definitely one of the creepiest moments of my life, and I'm still nervous driving down secluded country roads at night these days. I had always been drawn to stories that defied explanation, but little did I know that my journalistic curiosity would lead me into a world of intrigue and mystery. As a newsman in West Virginia, I found myself venturing into Braxton County, where an unusual incident had unfolded. News had spread of an airplane crash in the area, piquing my interest. I made my way to the site, hoping to uncover the truth behind the peculiar event. As I arrived, a sense of tension hung in the air, and I could see a small crowd gathered around the wreckage. Approaching the scene, I noticed a man standing nearby, clad in a suit that seemed out of place for the rural surroundings. His appearance caught my attention. High cheekbones, slant eyes, and dark skin that hinted at a foreign origin. Intrigued, I approached him, hoping he could shed some light on the situation. With a calm demeanor, he assured me that no one had been hurt in the crash, and that no crime had been committed. His words perplexed me. How could such an incident occur without any consequences or investigation? Something didn't add up. Curiosity getting the better of me, I noticed a small metallic object lying on the ground near the wreckage. It seemed insignificant, almost like a trinket or a toy. Without thinking much of it, I picked it up and slipped it into my pocket, Perhaps it could serve as a clue in unraveling the truth. As night fell and the world around me grew quiet, I found myself restless at home. The events of the day lingered in my mind. 
the unanswered questions gnawing at my insatiable curiosity. It was around 3 a.m. when a sudden knock on my door shattered the silence, jolting me from my thoughts. Opening the door cautiously, I was taken aback to find an army officer standing before me. His appearance mirrored that of the man at the crash site, the same high cheekbones, slant eyes, and dark skin. It was as if they were cut from the same cloth. Without hesitation, the officer demanded the return of the metal thingamajig I'd picked up earlier. Surprised and caught off guard, I reluctantly handed it over to him, my mind racing with questions. How did he know I had taken it? And why was it of such importance? The army officer thanked me sternly, his expression revealing nothing. With the object back in his possession, he turned and left, disappearing into the night, as mysteriously as he had appeared. Left standing in my doorway, I couldn't help but wonder what secrets this strange artifact held. I still remember the day I first set foot on the grounds of West Point, the prestigious United States Military Academy. The campus, with its gothic castle-like buildings, exuded an air of both grandeur and eeriness. As an aspiring army officer, I was ready to embark on a journey that would test my limits physically, mentally, and spiritually. Being a cadet at West Point meant living in the barracks, which were more like ancient structures that seemed to have stood the test of time. Assigned to the infamous Lost Fifties barracks during my sophomore year, I found myself in the midst of stories and legends of ghostly encounters. It was said that the spirits of fallen soldiers roamed the halls, their presence felt by those who dared to stay up late, studying or succumb to sleep deprivation. As an engineering student, my days were filled with demanding classes and rigorous training. Sleep became a luxury I could rarely afford, and the constant exhaustion blurred the line between reality and imagination. The creaking floors, the mysterious noises, and the occasional slamming of doors all became part of the background noise in my sleep-deprived existence. I shrugged it off, convinced that even the ghosts would have to wait their turn if they wanted to haunt me. Fast forward to 2011, and I found myself deployed to the unforgiving terrain of Afghanistan. It was a harsh reality, a far cry from the hallowed halls of West Point. My best friend and college roommate, who shared the same dreams of serving our country, was tragically taken from us in an ambush. Grief consumed me, and my mind couldn't help but wander into the realm of the supernatural. The day after his death, I had a dream. A vivid encounter that felt both surreal and hauntingly real. In that dream, my friend and I had a conversation, as if he were standing right beside me. His words echoed with an otherworldly wisdom as he warned me of the dangers that lay ahead. Watch out for Ives, he said. When the road turns to loose dirt, you need to be vigilant. I woke up shaken to the core. Was it just a dream born out of grief and guilt? Or was there something more to it? Despite my skepticism, I couldn't ignore the lingering feeling that his message held significance. With a heavy heart and a newfound sense of caution, I prepared for another routine convoy security mission. As we traversed the dusty Afghan roads, I couldn't shake off the image of loose dirt under our wheel. And then it happened, a deafening explosion, shattering the calm of the surrounding desert. Our vehicle had struck an iad, and chaos erupted. Amid the chaos and the smoke, I found myself relatively unharmed, save for a few stitches and a renewed sense of awe. The dream, my friend's warning, had come true. It was as if he had guided me through the darkness, protecting me from the very dangers that took his life. In the aftermath of that fateful day, I couldn't help but reflect on the mysteries of life and death and the thin veil that separates them. The lost fifties barracks with its alleged hauntings seemed to hold a deeper meaning now. Perhaps the spirits of those who had gone before us were not mere tales or figments of imagination, but guardians watching over us in ways we could never fully comprehend. My army career continued, forever marked by the memory of my fallen friend and the unexplained events that unfolded. 
Life taught me that there are forces beyond our understanding, and sometimes the supernatural intertwines with our reality in ways we can only begin to fathom. And so I walked on with a newfound respect for the mysteries that lie beneath the surface, ever vigilant and ready to face whatever may come. My husband worked as a government contractor for a company that sends him all over the world. For a few years, my daughter and I would travel with him. He was usually gone for months at a time. One of his business trips was to Bremerton, Washington. We were put into an apartment called Olympic Village Apartments. It was rented out to companies like his. They were okay, fully furnished, better than a hotel, especially for that length of time that we usually saved. The apartment we had was on the ground floor. It was decorated well, and the furniture wasn't too worn. Nothing seemed or felt weird. I usually can read vibes of places where I go. I am not sure how to explain it. I don't think I am psychic, just maybe. In tune with my surroundings, things seemed pretty normal for the first few days. I spent most days there since I didn't have a car, just playing my video games or watching TV. One night, my husband came home to the apartment, and I had dinner ready and set out. We all sat down at the table to eat, having the normal conversations people do, like how was work type stuff, when all of a sudden I felt something touch my thigh. I didn't respond to it because I wasn't sure exactly what had just happened, so I continued eating. A few moments later, it happened again. It felt familiar, like my old ten pounds. Chihuahua was begging for food. I looked down, thinking I would see a dog looking up at me, but there wasn't anything there. My instinct had been to move him down with my hand, to get him to stop begging. I laughed out loud and said to my husband, I keep feeling like there's a dog here. I felt something jump at my leg, and I almost pushed it down. My husband said, that's weird, because I feel like there is one here, too. He told me he was on his way to the bathroom around 3 a.m. As soon as he walked out and turned to walk down the hall, he seen a small shadow sitting there still looking at him. He jumped back, startled, and it disappeared. I was in shock because I didn't expect anyone to feel the same thing. It seemed weird. I am very connected to animals. I've always been my whole life. Dogs and I seem to have a very deep bond, almost on a spiritual level. About a week later, it was a weekend, and my husband and I were watching TV. We were both on our own couch. Mine was the large sofa, so I was stretched out under a blanket, almost without any thinking. I went to readjust my position, and the moment I thought my dog was laying in the crease of the back of my knee, where my legs bend. I was being careful to not squash him or move him because I felt a weight on the blanket. I looked, and nothing was there. I felt weird, I told my husband what had happened. Everything was normal for a while after that. I hadn't felt the dog since the couch. One night I woke up and had to go to the bathroom. I am night blind and I wear glasses, but I decided to just go without putting them on. The bathroom had a window and a light from outside shined through with just enough light that I could see once I got close and around the corner. So I headed down the hall, sliding my hand slowly across the wall so I could feel where to go. I was looking straight ahead, but it was pitch black. I came to the corner, with my hand still tracing the side, and I saw something. It was darker than the dark hall, but the darkness blocked the light from the window. The light traced a body. Its height brought my head to look instinctively up towards where a face would be. I froze in terror gasped and jumped back, scared because I thought it was a real person. Where the head would be, it looked like he was wearing a top hat. This dark figure seemed to be close to six feet five tall. Once I realized it wasn't human, I quickly rushed past it to turn on the bathroom light. With the light on, I seen that nothing was there. Years later, I brought this up to my daughter. I didn't want to tell her before, because she was still little. And she shared with me she also seen a man there who would stand in the corner with a big hat and a little dog at his feet.
This happened only three weeks ago. I've thought about it often, and I know without a doubt me and my patient were almost prey to a predator. I work for my state. I work with people with substance abuse disorder, the mentally ill, and to a lesser degree, those with slight developmental delays. My role with the developmentally delayed is similar to a lower-ranked social worker. One thing I have to verify is that the participant is able to achieve their own personal goals set for that year, similar to an IEP in public schools. One of my patients has a goal to walk and or hike at least one mile three times a week. When I made my visit to her home, walking hiking was what I need to see her achieve. So she took us both on a walking slight hiking trail nearby. Her and I are actually similar age our forties. As we were walking the trail, we got to a point that was much more isolated. We were no longer walking the trail that loops around a neighborhood pond with many people, but we were on trail that took us through the woods in a cotton field. Her and I were walking and talking when she suddenly stopped walking. I looked at her and just as she went to say, I have a bad feeling. I had an overwhelming feeling myself that someone was watching us. Due to her development delays, I felt more concerned for her welfare than my own. It's hard to explain, but I didn't feel fear. I felt a feeling of protecting her. I looked behind us because I heard the sound of leaves crunching, and sure enough, a guy who looked to be in his thirties was suddenly coming out of the woods, and he's slowly creeping up towards us. There was no one else around, so for this guy to magically come out of the woods and creeping up, I knew whatever he wanted was nefarious. I told her to continue walking giving her a head start. I don't know why I even did this, but I just completely turned myself around, stopped, and I looked straight at him. I just stared. I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything, but as soon as we locked eyes, it was as if he realized now they know I'm back here because he froze and stopped walking towards us. I kept staring at him. Then I started to walk back towards my patient so he understood my eyes were on him. Then, as I walked backwards, I looked over to see my patient, looked back at him, and he disappeared as fast as he came, back into the woods. If he were just wanting to walk this nature trail, why did he stop as soon I turned around and stared? Why wouldn't he just continue on his walk and pass us? This guy was clearly waiting and watching for a woman, or women, to go down the isolated trail. For him to come out of the woods when he did... It was clear to me that he was out hiding and stalking. I will forever be convinced that my patient's bad feeling and my feeling of being watched saved one or both of us from whatever that man had planned. I'm a pretty avid backpacker in the Pacific Northwest. Sometimes I'll hike for days on end without seeing another person. I think it's exhilarating being completely alone. There's really no feeling like it. You get used to it, but personally I can never help but be on edge. The environment is completely serene and friendly, but there's a constant feeling in the back of your mind. It's hard to put your finger on. Most of the time you'll be chugging along, comfortable in your mind, but when you stop for rest or to fill up on water, you can't help but look over your shoulder. Nothing bothers me much out in the woods. I've run into brown bears, had elk trampled through camps late at night, and much more. But one night was different. I was on a deep backwoods hike in the late fall off. Season was pretty cold, but the snow hadn't quite started falling yet. I like that. In fact, I usually plan my trips this way. The forest ranger I talked to when I was organizing the trip said I was the only hiker she knew of who'd be up there at the time. I was using dispersed camping sites so far off the beaten path they don't have fire pits. That night was five or six miles from the trail into the area. I set up camp at a site about a hundred yards from a, a stream close enough that a faint babbling was audible. I'd lit a fire, cooked dinner, read for a while, and was settling down to sleep. I lay listening for a while to the sounds of the woods and the creek. Just as I was nodding off, I think I hear voices. Nothing distinct, no clear words, but clearly a group of people was having a good time. Laughing, maybe telling stories around a campfire. 
A feeling of dread came over me. I thought I shouldn't leave the tent. Fear, like I've never felt, engulfed me. All the hairs on my arms, legs, and on the back of my neck stood on end. I lay there for a while in panic, the voices carrying on, laughing indistinctly. After a while, they receded into the background noise. I still didn't leave the tent. I was too afraid. The next morning, after a very short night's sleep, I searched the surrounding area and the path to the site. The few shoe prints I found were faded and worn around the edges, too old and too few to be from the size of group I'd heard. I tried to shrug it off as nerves, maybe nervousness, got the best of me, but I couldn't shake a certain tension. I made good time to my next site, the last of the trip, looking around a little more than usual. Still nobody to be seen. That site had no stream. Dry camping isn't a blast, but it's doable if you pack enough water for cooking and drinking for the night. It was a lot quieter, just the chirps of bugs and the wind rustling the trees. I cooked my dinner and stayed up a good while after dark sitting on a log, looking at the stars and listening to the sounds of the forest, trying to hear the voices from the night before. But there was nothing. I turned in for the night, stretching every act out. I lay there, restless for what felt like hours. Finally, calm comes over me. In the ayat's back, nothing threatening or particularly scary, just the sounds of a group of fifteen, twenty having a good time, barely audible above the background noise. This time I'm calm, and there's what seems like an internal dialogue in the back of my mind. Why not join them? Sounds like they're having fun. I'd really rather stay here. This is entirely unconscious and goes on for a while. I'd never experienced anything like this. I was worried that I'd lost it. After a time, the noises faded away into the white noise, and I felt that I was alone. The next day, I packed as quickly as I could and got out of Dodge. During the day, I was more at ease like I had always been in the past. I was relieved when I got to the car and started back home. I told the story a few times, and every time I felt a little of that dread from the first night, I really had no reason to feel strongly about what had happened. I just heard strange noises in the forest. Nothing extraordinary, but I felt it. On one occasion, I told the story my teacher, who's native. He got quiet for a minute, then said I had run into stick Indians. He said that it was good that I didn't leave the tent. Stick Indians are evil and dangerous beings that prey on children and women. The look on his face was sober. He told me not to go back to that place again. These spirits are extremely aggressive and attack and kill at the slightest provocation, including even saying their silish name, which he refused to do. Whenever the subject comes up, I get that same fear in me. As I write this, I'm thousands of miles from those sites, and my arms are still quaking. This began a few years ago when I took up regular walking for my health. Not many people in my city walk, so usually I am the only one walking for miles all around. Yet I would regularly cross paths with someone else walking in a different direction at intersections. For example, with me walking east or west and them walking north or south. No one else around, and yet sometimes we would both have to slightly change our direction or pace to avoid bumping into each other. Other times it would happen so we would pass within a few feet of each other. The first few times this happened it was quite unnerving. It seemed so bizarre. I would cross the road and look around. Not another soul in sight except people in cars. But there was nothing creepy about it. They were all just normal people, strangers, doing their own thing, perhaps on their way to work or shopping, some just taking their dog for a stroll. Sometimes it would be a couple of friends. I wouldn't notice them again either. It would always be someone different next time. Yet this coincidental crossing of paths just kept happening, several times a week, sometimes as frequently as twice in a single day. It puzzled me since it seemed the chances of two crossing paths on an otherwise deserted city grid was fairly low. It wasn't just walking along the sidewalks either. It could happen in relatively deserted parks. 
it became something I expected now. For example, I would be walking on a diagonal path across a sports field. I would look around, and sure enough, there would often be someone far off in the distance, walking on a perfect course to intercept me at nearly right angle to my courses. Oh, right, there they are, I would say to myself. I just began to accept it as this weird thing that kept happening for no particular reason. Any insights or ideas into why this happens? The only person I've ever told is my wife at the time, now my ex. She laughed and accused me of making it all up. Before I get to my encounter, I'll give you a little backstory. I was born in Mobile, Alabama in 1964. Up until the mid-twenties, I'd never been on any higher ground than a couple of hundred feet above sea level. In the mid-eighties to early nineties, my sister had gotten married and moved to Rowan Mountain in eastern Tennessee. My wife and I took a trip up there to visit for a week. After the first few days of running around and seeing the sights, we spent the day just hanging out at the house. This led to a few cold beverages being consumed and the grill getting fired up that evening. Later that night, around 9 p.m., I went out on the back porch to get another beer. That's when I noticed about half a dozen deer about 100 yards out in the field behind the house. One had a nice rack, and I couldn't quite make out the number of points, so I slipped off the porch and eased over to the corner of the fence, which put me about 60 to 70 yards away from them. As I'm standing there against the fence watching the deer, the big one was a nice 10-point minimum 200 class. That's when I noticed the moon. When I say it noticed, I mean noticed, it was huge and seemed so much closer than I'd ever seen it before. Now I've been out in the Gulf of Mexico at night and been able to witness the moon well away from any city lights, and you can see all kinds of detail on the surface of the moon with the naked eye. But that night I finally understood what the word awesome means or what awestruck means. So I'm standing at this fence watching the deer, or was supposed to be, but I can't take my eyes off this big glowing yellowish, orange ball of light that seems to be just out of reach. So after what I thought was around 20 minutes later, I, I found out it was more like an hour. I start noticing a tickling sensation on the back of my neck. I shrugged my shoulders and turned my neck a couple of times, trying to shake loose whatever it was it was tickling me, and just then the deer got spooked and bounced away. The noise finally forced me to break my gaze on the moon. That's when I realized that I've probably been out there long enough. I decided to go back inside. I took one last look and mumbled at, wow, wow at the beauty of this little sun, reflecting satellite that orbits our world, and that's when it hit me. I felt the hot breath of a huge creature hit the back of my neck at the same time hearing or feeling the deepest chest rumbling hum I've ever heard. I spied onto my right, looking over my shoulder. All I could see was black as far as my peripheral vision would allow. It was all Bigfoot. This all happened in a split second. When I got my head around far enough, I realized that my face was maybe eight to ten inches away from this thing's upper abdomen. Looking up, I saw this beast's pectoral muscles stuck off his chest about six inches and were huge. His chest was every bit of four and a half feet wide, his shoulders. They're as big as basketballs, added another foot or so on each side from shoulder to shoulder. This thing was at least six feet wide. I've not got a good look at his hands or face, but his arms were probably more impressive than his chest and shoulders. If Hulk Hogan has 22-inch pipe bones, this bipedal beast was sporting 20. Eight to 30-inch guns. His forearms would make Poppy jealous. His arms were covered in long, dark hair, maybe four or six inches in length. If I had to guess, this behemoth must have been around ten feet tall and seven to eight hundred pounds. As far as his face goes, from the angle I was at all, it could make out was a squared-off bearded chin. I cannot see a nose, eyes, ears, raised brow ridge, conical head, nothing, so I can't say whether it looked more like a man or an ape. His arms were more like an ape's, but his chest was more human, like just a little more hairy than most.
Now, this is where the story starts getting weird. As I mentioned earlier, it all happened in a split second. As I spun around and was in the process of looking up, this thing was going from a bent-over position to standing up straight and taking a step back to his right. As he pulled his left leg over his right, it was like he was slipping through a slit in a green screen. I'm not sure if it was a portal or some sort of interdimensional doorway or what. All I know is this huge thing vanished within that split second. By the way, there was no foul smell associated with this creature. There was a slight musty smell, but it reminded me of the same smell a horse gives off. I mean, you could smell it, but I'm not going to say it was a stench. I will say this, I hear a lot of people saying that these things are evil and demons, and they may be. All I know is I got the impression that this beast was intelligent and appreciated my interest in the moon. The arm that he gave out made me feel the same way I would feel when I do something good that would make my grandfather proud, and he would give me the same approving hum that this Bigfoot did. You just never had the same volume or power that this thing did. 